Our Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give ear, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. We'll be reading to verse 28 this morning, the word of our God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. Instantly. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in this portion of God's Word, as this will be the primary portion of God's Word for our morning sermon. This is a strange passage. I mean, out of the blue, Jesus leaves the Sea of Galilee where he'd been teaching and heads off to the port cities of Sidon and Tyre. Um, these port cities are outside the boundaries of Israel, and they're uh, 30 and 50 miles respectively from where Jesus was teaching. Now that might not seem like a big deal to us, but the disciples and Jesus had to travel there both ways on foot. More significantly, Sidon and Tyre are notorious pagan cities outside the land of Israel. Josephus 
the first century Jewish historian says this about them. He says, Tyre is our most bitter enemy. That's how Jews looked at Tyre, that ancient pagan city. And of course, Jezebel was a Sidonian. I, I mean, we're not told anywhere that Jesus actually goes into those two cities, but he's traveling specifically to those regions, regions where everything around them would be crying out, unclean, unclean. What in the world is Jesus doing? And to make matters worse, the woman who approaches Jesus is identified as a Canaanite. Actually, that term was going out of use around that time. Um, but the Canaanites were the people, or among the people, whom the Lord had commanded Israel to utterly blot out when Joshua led the people into the promised land because of more than four centuries of their crass idolatry and gross immorality. And here's one of their descendants coming up to Jesus. And if that isn't enough, what are we to make of the fact that Jesus, at least at first, as this woman is crying out to him over and over and over again for mercy, he doesn't even speak to her. Not even a single word. And then when he speaks, he refers to her as a dog. I mean, be honest, that's not the type of thing that you expect Jesus to say to anybody. This is a very strange passage indeed. The key is to remind ourselves that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four gospel authors. While John frequently explains Jewish customs, and Luke even translates some of them into expressions that Gentiles will understand, Matthew is writing for a Jewish Christian audience who get Jewish customs and grasp the Old Testament stories instinctively. And so he introduces things without always explaining the connections that we need to see. With a little bit of reflection, we can see that this particular story, where Jesus is going into the land of Sidon and Tyre, actually is playing off the backdrop of Elijah in the Old Testament when he goes to the widow at Zarephath, which is in the region of Sidon. Same area. And actually what you're going to see is, is in both stories, Israel gets left without the word of God, while a very unlikely Gentile, somebody the Israelites were looked down upon and condemned, gets saved, and their child gets miraculously healed. And so if you read this story against that Old Testament background, you're going to grasp more clearly, and I think more powerfully, what exactly is going on. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, abandonment. Second, a most unlikely convert. Third, grace alone. And fourth, faith alone. Let me give those to you once again. First, abandonment. Second, a most unlikely convert. Third, grace alone. And fourth, Faith alone. We begin our strange story with abandonment. The Pharisees and scribes had abandoned the word of God. Now the incarnate word was turning his back upon them. 
Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Um, Jesus is previously withdrawn from the crowds, uh, in part to give his disciples rest, but he's also withdrawn from them so that he could have time alone for prayer with his Father. This is different. This is not Jesus just needing a break. This is Jesus turning his back judicially upon those who are rejecting the word of God. This withdrawal was a type of judgment upon the people of Israel. They are being left without their Messiah. Christ's teaching and healing presence is no longer with them as he physically leaves Israel behind. I want you to recall from last week, if you were here and if you're not, uh, I trust you could follow along, but it's just a little bit higher up in the story. It's the previous passage in Matthew. That a delegation of scribes and Pharisees have come to Jesus from Jerusalem. What were they doing? These official Jewish teachers and leaders. Well, they were coming to check Jesus out. But they weren't just coming as neutral observers. They were coming looking to find fault with him by finding fault with his disciples' behavior. That is, they came to put Jesus on trial. As they challenge Jesus about the behavior of his disciples, our Lord reveals that these outwardly pious Jews were completely ignoring the word of God. Right? Jesus says, you've made vain the word of God for the sake of your man-made traditions. They had come to pass their judgment upon Jesus. Jesus responds by pronouncing his judgment upon them. You hypocrites, Jesus says. Well did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. We should therefore understand Jesus withdrawing from them here, not simply that Jesus wants to get away from them, although that might be true as well, but as a type of judicial judgment. The incarnate word is turning his back on them. Since they refuse to listen to the word of God in faith, and therefore to put God's word into practice in their lives, the incarnate word will no longer listen nor speak with them. Well, that's about them, but what about us? Let me suggest this is a profound warning for us. It is very easy for us to make the false assumption that whatever blessings God is holding out to us today are going to be there tomorrow and five years from now, right? So that we can put it off. We don't have to trust God today. We don't have to follow Jesus diligently today because you know what? We'll just make a plan. I'm going to do that later, right? That's a very real temptation. We wouldn't say it that way, but we would think it that way. First of all, even if this were true, it would mean that we are squandering our lives between now and then, right? Because it, 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 the best life you could possibly have is a life that trusts God all the way through. We'd be squandering our lives between now and then, and we'd be doing harm in our own lives and the lives of other people that could very well live on long after, in God's grace, we actually do turn to him in repentance and cling to Jesus Christ and live by every word that comes from the mouth of our God. But second, 
the illusion that we can always get around to trusting God later is simply not true. Sometimes when people harden their hearts against the Lord, the Lord withdraws the very means of grace that we all so desperately need. In this morning's story, Jesus actually physically withdraws himself so that the Messiah is no longer in their presence. This is why the author of the Hebrews quotes the same line from Psalm 95 three times. Therefore, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beloved of the Exodus generation, all the men who saw all the mighty signs that God did to deliver the people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, only Caleb and um, Joshua enter the promised land. And the New Testament is telling us those things were written down for our instruction. They are warnings for us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but trust and obey now. As I mentioned, Christ's judicial withdrawal, where he leaves the entire land of Israel and travels to the territories of Tyre and Sidon, was prefigured to the prophet Elijah. In the days of Elijah, the people of God only had a relatively small portion of the Bibles we have today. Boy, that's an easy thing to take for granted. I don't know how many Bibles I even have in my house. I have a lot. I can access more on the internet and on tablets and so on. Right? It's hard to imagine what it would be like to have that all taken away from me so I don't have the word of God. But you know, in Elijah's day, they only had a small portion of God's word written, and God gave them his, his guidance by sending them prophets and the prophetic word. So when Elijah the prophet leaves Israel and goes to, to the area outside of Sidon, and God takes his prophetic word away from them, they are without God's word for three years. That's an astonishing judgment. As the Lord warned through the prophet Amos, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. You see, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, the Lord sends both, right? He, he closes up the heavens for three years and it doesn't rain. It's one of the worst famines in human history. It devastates Israel and the surrounding territories. But even worse than that, they went three years without a word from the living God. Where did God's messenger go during this time? Elijah went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, the very place that Jesus is traveling through in this morning's passage. Christ's judicial withdrawal from Israel is retracing the judgment that God had brought upon Israel in the days of Ahab and the prophet Elijah. Now on his journey, Jesus encounters a most unlikely convert. 
Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. We are so familiar with desperate people coming to Jesus with their problems that we could miss just how radical an encounter this is. Matthew tells us plainly that this woman was a Canaanite. A little bit more than a decade ago, uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a really fine book, it's worth reading, that had the title, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. See, Butterfield was a feminist and a lesbian activist. She was a professor of English, but actually her area of specialty was teaching queer critical theory. And the book is the story of how the Lord graciously transformed her life and made her into a committed, reformed Christian. Now, anybody looking at the before and after pictures of Rosaria Butterfield, before and after she became a Christian, they would think that she was a most unlikely convert. But I want to tell you that Rosaria Butterfield had nothing on this Canaanite woman. This is an important and a powerful reminder to us. Every single conversion is a miracle of God's grace. Every single one of them. No no matter how far a person might seem to be away from Christianity, nobody is beyond the power of God to rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into his family as his very own children. Now, we're not given this woman's backstory. But when she approaches Jesus, she is already calling him both Lord and Son of David. I trust most of you realize, actually, the term Lord is a bit ambiguous in the New Testament because it can mean a whole range of things, everything from a polite greeting to you're in a position of real authority to a description or ascription of deity. It has a very broad range of meanings. If you just heard that term Lord on the lips of this Canaanite woman, it would be hard to figure out what she's getting at. But Son of David is very specific. It's a messianic title that says, You are the king of Israel. Which is really an astonishing thing to hear on the lips of a Canaanite. The scribes and the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus as Messiah, but here a Canaanite woman, however deeply she might have understood this messianic title, was ascribing it to Jesus. She thought that Jesus was the king of Israel, and she thought that the king of Israel was the one person who could rescue her daughter. And so she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Please notice that she comes to Jesus asking for unmerited favor. She does not come to Jesus saying, Let's make a deal. You know, I'm wealthy, perhaps. You've healed my daughter. I'll give you clothing. I'll give you a place to stay. I'll bring you food. No, she doesn't say any of those things. She says, Lord, I need mercy. I bring nothing but the need. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. 
That is, of course, how all of us come to Jesus. As the great preacher John Chrysostom put it, Lord, I have but one thing to say, one thing to plead, and one thing upon which I cast all my hopes, and that is your mercy in Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is the only way that any of us ever come to God for salvation, or for life for that matter. Uh, this dovetails very nicely into the next section, which I have titled Grace Alone. Please look at verses 23 and 24 with me. Verses 23 and 24. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, the first time we read these words, they are jarring. And the 20th time we read these words, they are jarring. Right? We simply do not expect Jesus to ignore anyone who is coming to him pleading for mercy. But Jesus refuses to even speak a single word to this woman. Remember, the expression he says is actually to the disciples. He's not even talking to her. What in the world is going on? Well, we get some help from R.T. France. Professor France points out, we must read the story as a whole. In the end, Jesus does exactly what the woman is asked and commends her for her faith in stronger terms than he uses for anyone else except the centurion. And then Professor France goes on to ask a rhetorical question. May this not have been the outcome he intended from the start? And the obvious answer is yes. That is the outcome Jesus intended from the start. He wasn't ignoring her need, but he was orchestrating events to bring her to a deeper level of faith and also to promulgate a critical message for all the disciples to hear, disciples then and disciples now, right here in this church. And what was that message? God does not save good people who are worthy. God saves bad people who are unworthy. That is, salvation is by grace alone. That's the point. The living God does not save good and worthy people. He saves bad and unworthy people. Now try to grasp that this runs entirely counter to the way that we naturally think as fallen human beings. I mean, think back to the scribes and Pharisees that we saw last week. They thought that their ceremonial washings, which by the way they made up, they weren't even ceremonial washings ordered by the Lord. They thought their man-made tradition and their outward piety made them more acceptable to God than the riffraff that was running around in Galilee. Well, we can look down on them, but you know, we really do tend to do the same thing. Don't rush to answer the question. Just think about it for a moment. Don't we all tend to think a bit like this? If you look at your classmates or your coworkers, there's a clear difference between them. And you look at one of your coworkers, and he's a good guy. Clean living, loves his wife, loves his children, 
you know, doesn't cheat on his taxes. He's just a good and decent person. And then another one of your coworkers, well, he gets drunk three nights a week. He's foul-mouthed. Um, he's been divorced a few times, and he, he's a womanizer, and he objectifies women, and he engages in watching pornography and all sorts of things. Don't you instinctively think that the first man is closer to the kingdom of God than the second? Yes, you do. We all naturally do that. And what we need to remind ourselves is both of them desperately need the Lord. Right? Both of them need to be saved entirely by God's grace. And neither one of them is any further away from the kingdom of God because of their outward lies. Neither of them will bring anything to their salvation other than the sins which make their redemption necessary. Listen once again to these familiar words from Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, Now the one, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Whom does God justify according to the word of God through the Apostle Paul? He justifies the ungodly. Not good people. Not people who are working their way up to the kingdom of God. He justifies the ungodly who say, I bring nothing but sin. I trust everything to your mercy. In Christ Jesus, my Lord. Before Jesus ever called and converted the Apostle Paul who wrote these words, he was demonstrating this fact through how he engaged with this Canaanite woman. And well, the disciples are frankly annoyed. Um, by the way, you, you get annoyed in their situation too. It does show you that this has been going on for some time. Right? They're going around, walking around. They don't really know necessarily why Jesus is heading out the tire inside, and we don't know that he's told them. And there's this person that just keeps crying out over and over again, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus won't even talk to him. I mean, it gets on your nerves after a while. In fact, they don't simply ask Jesus to send her away. They came and begged him. We're not told that anywhere else. They came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Think about how long this must have been going on for, which, by the way, may be a, uh, this Canaanite woman may be a wonderful picture of persistent prayer and faith. She did not give up. The disciples don't simply ask Jesus to send her away. They beg him. But what exactly are the disciples asking Jesus to do? Um, I don't think they're so crass as to say, Lord, just get rid of her. Uh, you know, they have never seen a time in his entire ministry where Jesus would not heal somebody who came to them pleading in faith and asking for mercy. I think what they're saying, and this will make better sense of Jesus' response, is, Lord, why don't you just give her what she wants so that she'll stop nagging us? Which actually matches up very well with a parable that Jesus will later tell about the person next door who kept knocking on the judge's door until she got justice. Right? The disciples are saying, Give her what she wants, heal her daughter, send her away. 
And Jesus says, not to her, but to them, of course she overhears them, it is not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Now, if the disciples were astonished that Jesus wouldn't even talk to this woman, um, they must have been blown away by those words. I doubt there was ever another time in Christ's ministry where he talked to someone who was pleading for mercy and described them as a dog. Jesus reserved his harsh words for the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people who were self-righteous. What do you make of that? Well, Jesus is driving home the point. Unworthy. And this woman, astonishingly, assents. First, Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we're reminded that this is the very thing that Jesus had commanded his disciples when he had sent them out on their first independent missionary journey back in chapter 12. But but when he says that, this woman comes and kneels before him. That's that's an act of worship. Lord, help me. And as I say, it is just astonishing that Jesus would refer to her as a dog. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Yet in one sense, this Canaanite woman has actually set up the whole thing. She's an outsider calling Jesus the son of David. See what Jesus is saying to his disciples? If I am in fact the Messiah of Israel who's come to save the people of God, save my people from their sins, what claim does an outsider like a Canaanite have upon my grace? I ought not to be distracted from my mission to minister to her. Of course, we know that Jesus has already done that with other Gentiles. So his point is to draw out the fact that she is entirely unworthy with no claim upon the Jewish Messiah at all. So what's even more remarkable than Jesus calling her a dog is the woman accepts this designation. Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Here is the message that Jesus has been working towards. This Canaanite fully embraces the truth, but the Lord acts in grace toward the unworthy and the ungodly. Furthermore, this woman actually has a very exalted view of Jesus. She's saying, Lord, even your crumbs... Even the leftovers of your blessing are sufficient to save my daughter. Right? She's thinking of a very big Messiah. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I just remind you of the connection here with Elijah, right? In both cases, the the woman comes to faith and is saved, and their child is miraculously healed, while the healing presence and the word of God has withdrawn from the chosen people of Israel. Uh, This is the only time in the gospel, according to Matthew, that Jesus describes anyone's faith as being great. Intriguingly, the other person in Matthew that Jesus praises very highly for their faith is a centurion, but is a Gentile Roman soldier. 
is to the centurion, he says, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. What about this woman's faith and the centurion's faith drew forth our Lord's highest praise? They were both completely dependent upon Jesus. Let me say that again. They were both completely dependent upon Jesus. They both freely confessed how utterly unworthy they were, and they both expressed their confidence that Jesus was entirely sufficient for their greatest needs. That is, they came to Jesus by faith alone. That is God's only plan for redeeming a people. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for anyone and everyone who will ever be saved. We should not miss the fact, as we gather for worship this morning, that we are actually in the place of the Jews. Not the centurion, not the Canaanite. Uh, we're insiders right now. We're members of Christ's covenant community. And we are therefore in the place of the Jews in this story. We therefore need to check our own hearts. Have we begun to think that the Canaanites, the Roman soldiers, the lesbian activists, and the drug addicts, that they all need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, but somehow we contribute our own virtue and good works? You know, because... We're not a bad catch. We say that's a common temptation for the people of God throughout history. And if we are beginning to think like that, we need to repent before we end up like the scribes and the Pharisees. How do we do that and how do we guard our hearts? Two things. First, we focus more on Jesus. You know, no one goes to the Grand Canyon and looks out over this enormous expanse and thinks, boy, am I big, right? You know how we start to think of ourselves as good and big, even as Christians? We stop looking at Jesus and we look at our neighbors. And we compare ourselves to other human beings. And we say, you know, compared to my coworker, I'm a pretty good guy. But when we focus upon Jesus we realize there's this infinite gulf between him and us. He spoke the universe into existence, and then he allowed us to nail him to a tree that he had created. If you focus on Jesus, you will make much of him and not make anything of yourself. Nobody fixes their eyes on Jesus and then imagines that God receives us because of how good and pure we have made ourselves. And second, genuine faith is distinguished by listening to the voice of God and living by every word that comes forth from his mouth. Right? Faith trusts. So when should we do this? Beloved, do not plan to do this. Do this. Right now. Today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear the voice of your Lord speaking to you through Scripture, trust him entirely. Because you should trust Jesus' body and soul in life and death with everything that you are 
and everything that you have. This is not a potluck dinner where we all need to bring something and we're trying to figure out how I could bring something that's going to be particularly nice. All that you are required to bring to Jesus is your need and your confidence that he is utterly sufficient for all your needs. Indeed, though the crumbs from the master's table are sufficient for our needs, instead of giving us crumbs, Jesus gives us his own life as the bread of heaven. Therefore, as Christ's minister, I have the privilege of bidding you to come, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.